Good morning. Awesome. Thank you, Adam. Um, you know, um, chapters um, like Revelation 19, which is where we are today, um, don't make an awful lot of sense to churches, um, individuals who live in the proverbial lap of luxury. Um, to say it a little differently, Revelation 19 is unintelligible to the church, to the individual that is at ease and is not at war. The reason is that Revelation 19 serves as an invitation for the church to respond in worship. Um, not to a particular message that is warm and fuzzy in nature, which there's nothing wrong with a good, warm, fuzzy message at the right time. But Revelation 19 is an invitation to respond to the Lord um, in the full-orbed revelation of who He is. Worship... um, in our modern context of the church, has often been hijacked by irrelevant arguments relating to style and location. And all that really does is condition us to worship only in response the things that feel good and environments that are tweaked just right. If that makes sense. And the problem with that is that many of the Scripture's invitations to worship are usually in response to some really intense moments that involve the revealing of the Lord that are not necessarily conducive to environment or location. To be consistent with the season. <laughs> Learning to worship is a little bit like playing the game of football. Um, there are very few individuals who can play that game differently than how they practice. You practice like you play. And the reason is it's a very violent game. It's supposed to be violent. It's not supposed to be um, cushy. Um, If you practice and you never practice tackling, you will play like the Falcons versus the Bears. You You will get a new collective bargaining agreement. Matt Forte will take a screen pass and Sean Weatherspoon will chest bump him and he will bounce off and scamper past you for a touchdown. But when you practice like the game is intended to be played, you earhole each other, even though you're teammates. And you get the breath knocked out of you and you struggle to get up and catch your breath again and you put your helmet back on straight so you're not looking through your earhole. 
Um, when that happens in a game, it's not such a big deal because, well, that's happened to me before. I'm okay. I can get up and I can, I can stay in the game. I need to come off the field. I get back in the huddle and roll. Worship is a little bit like this because if all we do is respond to the Lord when it's soft and easy, then when we do real life and the Lord allows hardship, we won't worship. We'll begin to question. Our worship of the Lord is never to be only in response to conducive environment and location. But in response to the Lord. If my capacity to sing is strictly environmental, follow me here. My environment is my God. If my capacity to respond to the Lord in song is stylistic, then my God is my style. Because our worship is not in response to location or style. Our worship is in response to the revealing of Jesus. And that's it. And and that can be any style, any place, any time. This is is one reason I always want us to avoid too much environmental manipulation to entice you to sing. One of the reasons I rarely try to set you up for worship with a slick conclusion. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. I'm not saying a person should never do that. But I really intentionally don't try to set you up to respond to anything I say or any environments. Because you and I need to be able to sing to the Lord as much in a fuzzy moment as much as we do when the world is falling apart around us. There's a little definition I've, we've learned before as a church, and it's been quite a while, and every now and then I quote it. It's this. It's not the only definition of worship. It's a good one. I like it. It's the one I like to use primarily because I was taught it by one of my professors in seminary, Dr. Leif Blad. Um, and it's quoted. You have, if you have notes there, it's footnoted at the bottom of your page. Worship is communion with God in which believers, believers, Not unbelievers, believers, Christians, followers of Jesus. Worship, communing with God. Fellowshipping with God. Being in the presence of God. Enjoying God. Exulting in, rejoicing in God. Believers, by His grace. By His kindness, by His amazing invitation. Centered their mind's attention and their heart's affection on the Lord. A mental and an emotive journey. Humbly glorifying, glorying in God. In response. In response. That, that's a key piece of that definition. It is in response. When you see the people of God in the Scriptures worshiping, it's not because they decided it was time. It's because they have, they have seen Him 
He has made himself clear. And all of their being comes to respond to this glorious revelation of his glory and his majesty. We respond and worship at any moment in time that we see his glory. See, the reality is we are, you are, I am, we are, we're worshiping creatures. We, we, we have that built into our divine hard drive. God makes much of himself. Worship is a reflection of God's own passion for his own praise. The son loves the father and is willing to go to the cross for the glory of the father. The spirit loves the son and is willing to testify only to the glory of the son. So that the father would be made much of. That's why it's built on your hard drive. You create an image of the triune God and, and this desire to make much of something else. It is just how you're wired. You're a worshiper. The question is not, am I worshiping? The question is, what or who am I worshiping? That's, that, that's an operative question on a daily basis. Who or what is, is receiving my affection right now? Is it my environment? Is it, is, it, is it someone? Is it something? John, in the absolute sheer amazingness of this moment in Revelation 19 at the end of the chapter, is so absolutely taken by what's happening in this chapter that he goes to bow down to the angel who has brought this word to him. And, and the angel's response is, is telling and very instructive. He, he responds to John. You just, just take a look there. Um, verse 9 through 10. And 10 is as far as we're going to go today. The angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. And I think it's one of the great testimonies of Scripture. The Scriptures never make anything of its, of its scribes. You know, if John were wanting to pull the wool over your eyes, he would make himself look real good. But he doesn't, because he's not the primary author. The Spirit is. He's the scribe. And John's telling you, I was about to commit a grievous act of idolatry. This is amazing. This angel came and he brought me this word and I bowed down to worship him. That's not a real flattering picture of yourself, is it? It's because it's not intended to be. John says, dude, this was incredible and I bowed down to worship. And, and look at the angel's response. You must not do that. No mincing words. His response is, John, don't do that. And he tells John here, that his mission is to worship God through the testimony of Jesus. And then he makes this statement here that the testimony of Jesus is the very spirit of prophecy. The very, the very, the very attitude, the very deal that drives the prophetic word is the very testimony of Jesus, the gospel. Meaning this. That the prophetic proclamation of the gospel, the prophetic foretelling of the good news of redemptive history, who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do and the consequences of that? Is the means by which we bring great praise to God through the testimony of Jesus 
not to anything else, very simply directed toward the triune God of the universe. Well, that's how those ten verses end. John, on his hard drive, built to worship, he bows in the wrong direction, and the angel says, that's not the direction, John. Your direction has to be directed to the God of the universe, through the testimony of Jesus and the gospel. And that's where I want to draw your attention today, because that's the dictates, that's the command of this text. A little background to you, for you, chapter 17 and 18, um, Jesus has brought judgment on the nations, on the kingdoms, on the king's cities, and particularly the capital city of Satan's attempt to crush the church. I'm reminded of the passages we've looked at on this nearly eight months of studying Revelation, that Jesus is the one in charge of history. Jesus is the one in charge of crushing Satan's forces, even by Satan's own forces of nations, kingdoms, kings, and cities. We see the fall of this capital city of Satan's deception that is depicted in chapter 18 as a total destruction of the nations of the world. And particularly this capital city that all the nations and kingdoms and kings have turned their attention to. This satanic entity that drives the political motivation behind the desire to stamp out the church. And we see this destruction And this city and these nations, these kings, these kingdoms and these cities that have been responsible for the blood of the saints and the prophets of the Lord Jesus are crushed. They're done away with. And you see this awesome and terrible picture in chapter 18 of what this looks like. That the ships of the sea are destroyed. Its economic foundations are laid bare. And all the kingdoms of the world are mourning over the destruction of this great city that has driven the world driven by Satan to stamp out the gospel. We see that Jesus brings an end to that bad boy, and he does it in fine fashion. And we come to Revelation 19, and it starts out with one of the coolest things that you're ever going to find in Scripture. And it leads me to point number one. And it is a command simply to worship. Worship. Revelation chapter 19 contains the only time in the New Testament that the word hallelujah is found. Hallelujah never shows up in the New Testament anywhere else except in this chapter. And it shows up four times. And if you don't know what that word means, it's a Hebrew word. And it's a compound word. Hallelujah. It's an imperative command. Praise. It's not like praise if you want to, praise if you like it. It is a command. Praise. Yah. The short name of the divine name God gave himself in the Old Testament, Yahweh. Of which Jesus said, he is Yahweh. The command is praise Yah! Four times. The only time in the New Testament. Praise Him. The NIV properly translates that phrase. Praise the Lord. John, by the inspiration of the Spirit, comes to the end of the destruction of these cities. And their eternal destruction, the smoke of their destruction, goes up forever and ever. And He comes, He says, Now praise Him! 
That's weird. Because you would think, you would think that it would be a, a wonderful, heartfelt longing and a story and a skit that moved your emotions. And you could come and sing. No, Jesus crushes Satan's city. And it's destroyed and all people are mourning. And he comes and says, now praise me. That's freaking awesome. That's astounding. And, and, and here's, here's why this is astounding. It's because this is not given as an option if you feel like it. And if the songs and the setting are to your liking. It's a command to come and make much of Jesus. Who's just rescued his people. Come and bring him praise. You see, worship is a life you live. And we've made much of that in the past. But it is also a song that you sing. And it's not optional. And it's not always in response to ease. Sometimes we are commanded to come and sing to wrath and judgment. And that's just strange for us. One of the reasons it's strange is, is what I said in, in, in the very beginning is because this chapter is unintelligible to the Christian or the church at ease and not at war. You see, what's been happening here is the church has been under the thumb of these cities and kings and nations that are being ran by Satan. And we were told in previous chapters that the Lord allowed them to have access to His church. And that much blood, as a matter of fact, verse 24 of chapter 18, and in her, that is this capital city now that's been destroyed, that's been supported by all these kingdoms and nations and kings, in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who've been slain on the earth. The church has been persecuted and thunderously, thunderously hampered. And Jesus comes and, and rescues His bride. And He says, now guys, let's get on our praise. Look at that destruction. I did that for you. Worship me. You see, we're told in Scripture, Paul in Romans 12, 19-21, quoting Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 91, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And he says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's exactly what the church has been doing. Taking blow after blow after blow after blow after blow and loving in return. Just like they did to Jesus, the church has been willingly, joyously taking blow after blow after blow. And at just the right moment, the king returns and he crushes the ones giving out the blows. And Jesus says, now worship me. You see, when persecuted for the faith and oppressed for the advance of the gospel... We don't have to fret ourselves with vengeance because the reason is that Father will take vengeance. I don't know if you noticed, 
in that passage there that Paul quotes when he's writing to the church at Rome that is going to go undergo a severe time of testing. But the Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You notice he doesn't say, um, man, those guys, they're tough. I don't know what we're going to do about that. He says, guys, that's my business. You love in return. Just like the Son of God came and He took blows once and did not open His mouth, did not fight back. You likewise, when they persecute for the gospel, you imitate Him because I will hand out justice. I will bring vengeance. And we're told here, Revelation 19, that there is a worship service that takes place. I want you to listen. Listen to the wording. After this. After what? After the crushing of these kings and nations and Satan's capital city. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. Hallelujah! Praise Yah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And has avenged on her the blood of His servants. That's cool. He's going to get them. He's going to get them. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Which means His justice is a forever meeting out on those who find themselves on the wrong team. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 20 more. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. You see, when persecuted for the faith and oppressed for the advance of the gospel, whatever that looks like for us, whatever it looks like where you are, because it doesn't always look like martyrdom. Sometimes it looks like marginalization. Sometimes it looks like a passive aggressiveness against the gospel. But for whatever reason, you find yourself oppressed for the advance of the gospel. And where we work in our part of the world, we have tasted this at a different level than other people. And you know what I'm talking about. We don't have to fret ourselves with vengeance. And the reason is Father will meet that out. He will make it right. He will even up the score. And then He's going to open up a can at the appointed time. And He says to us, come to me and worship. Which means sometimes our worship isn't always in response to an environment. That's just right. But sometimes all hell broke loose on your week. And the Lord says, I'll fix it. Come, make much of me. Make much of me.
I'll save that for later. Um, what, what, do we, what do we do? I have some points there for you. A, under number one, the command to come and worship. Come and worship in response to salvation from persecutors. Come and worship in response to salvation from persecutors. He says here he heard this, these multitude of voices crying out, Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for His judgments are true and just. That what purpose causes is important. He says, for. He says, come and praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to Him. Why? For. Purpose clause. Here's why you're to come and worship. His judgments are true and just. Come and worship Him for His judgment that is true and right. It's just. If you would allow me the freedom to say it a different way. When God meets out hell to those who deserve it, come and praise Him for it. Verse 2 again. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with their immorality. Immorality, particularly speaking about idolatrous actions of nations, kings, and peoples when their worship is directed away from Jesus. That's how God views immorality. It is taking away from Jesus what is His. You see, what you need to understand, what I need to understand is the error in how we approach love in our context. We have a tendency to view love as Elizabethan nicety. And what you need to understand is the biblical Godward concept of love is a coin that has two sides to it. If you allow me the freedom to use the illustration, on one side is the acceptance of of the Lord and His grace and kindness poured out on those who find themselves in the gospel. But the flip side of that coin is wrath. Anger. Righteous wrath and anger. Why? Because anger is a right response of love. If you find yourself betrayed by someone dear to you, your response is usually what? Anger. Why? Because you loved Jesus displays perfect love and patience and kindness. And when that is rejected and worship is given to the evil one as they chose in the garden, the right response of Jesus to that is what? Anger. Because He loved not His own life to the pouring out of His life for us. So if we would come and repent... He would place on us nothing but favor and kindness. But to all those who will walk over the cross in pride and sin, He will righteously, justly mete out punishment and hell. And He says to His people, Come to Me and worship Me because I am totally just. God delights in justice. And if His justice ever appears to be long in coming, fear not. He says here, the day is coming. I will crush your enemies. And you will respond to me in worship. We're to respond in the eternal justice for sinners and nations. You ever read the Psalms sometimes and get really disturbed by some of the songs David wrote? If you've ever read the Psalms, you know what I mean. If you don't read your Bible, you're like, I don't know. 
David says some really strange things in worship. Lord, may you crush their babies against the rocks and crack out all their teeth. And we're like, that's weird. That's inspired, by the way. It's not an error. It's inspired scripture and it's worship. And I know that's weird, but that is David crying out for justice against those who are stamping out the work of the good news. He says, Lord, it is just for you to do these things. So I'm worshiping you. I'm trying to obey. I'm in a cave. I'm hiding. I'm running. I'm pretending to be a madman so they don't get me. Would you come and rescue me? It's David worshiping. And I, and I say that to, 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 to throw this on you. That's, the reason that's weird is, again, my introductory statement. If we're not at war, we don't know what it's like for the Lord to come and mete out justice. We don't know what it's like to say, Father, would you avenge the blood of the saints spilled for the advancement of your cause? Father, would you, would you make right what has been so wrong for so long? And when he does, we see an answer to our prayer. You're faithful to me. You've done it. Thank you. You see, I think and I fear worship for American Christianity has been perverted. Because it is a response to ease and style. And often cases, perhaps it's been an idolatrous pursuit. Not a legitimate response to the awesomeness of a holy God who shows love and wrath in both matter. He invites them in verse 6 to respond to His reign. He says, Hallelujah. He hears, John hears this worship. And they say, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. He reigns. Do you see His reign today? When you see nations moving and kingdoms falling and economies tottering and people's confidence in their gods rocking, does it elicit praise? If not, perhaps, maybe, we have an idol. Because John says here to, to, to the Lord's righteous meeting out of vengeance, Come and worship. I've rescued you, my people. I've rescued you. So, what does is, what is response to Jesus' coolness like this look like? And yes, I say it's total coolness. Because I think as a church, you guys who've been in the fight long enough with us, and, and you guys who know what's going on, I think there are days, we don't know the whys of why some of the things have happened, but we know what has happened, and it's been bitter at points and times. And I think along with you, it is okay to cry out to the Lord and say, Father, we're being faithful, we're being obedient. We're using your resources well. Oh, God, would you come and make much of your name. Even if that means crushing those who are stopping the advance of the gospel, would you do your work and we'll praise you for it? It's okay. It's all right. Because we love the gospel. We love Jesus and we want him to be made much of. What what does he say here our response should look like? Well, verse 7 and 8 
he gives us what our response should look like. The first thing he says, let us rejoice. It's a good Bible word, isn't it? Rejoice. Well, rejoicing literally means an enjoyment of a state of happiness. Enjoying being exceedingly happy. You ever just been happy and enjoyed the fact that you were having joy? It's a little strange, I know. But rejoicing is an enjoyment of a state of happiness. It is, and, and when you're talking about, talking about rejoicing in the Lord, it is that my happy state is in Him in response to how absolutely amazing He is. He's brought justice. He's brought mercy. He's astounding. He's powerful. He's awesome. And I'm happy about that. And I'm happy about the fact that I'm happy. That's rejoicing. That is taking great delight in the fact that your happiness is directed in the right place. And you know what, guys? That takes effort. That requires you to think. It requires you to pay attention to the direction of your happiness. It requires you to evaluate what you're happy in. And it then requires you to think about, well, I'm happy in that, and I'm happy about the fact that my happiness is in the right location. Or, my happiness is in the wrong place, and I'm not excited about the fact that my happiness is misdirected. Lord, I need help. Which leads you to pray. Which is worship too. He says, rejoice over these things. Be happy in your happiness that is directed toward me. God delights in and wants His people to be happier than anybody on the face of the planet. He just wants the happiness to be directed to Him. Does that, that make sense? God is a happy God. He is a delightful God. And He wants us to be happy in Him. And He says, enjoy your enjoyment of Me. Which means, worship is fun. And worship only becomes fun when it's directed in the right place. Not simply an activity that we are consuming. You see, when we're consuming worship, it becomes an issue of performance and like and dislike. When our happiness is directed in the proper location, what I liked or didn't like is irrelevant and never comes up. And we just enjoy the fact that we just enjoyed Jesus. And that's a different level of worship than I think any of us can even begin to wrap our heads and hands around. But that's what he says. I've done all this. I've crushed this city. Now come and be happy in me. And enjoy the fact that you're happy in me. Then he says exult. That's another really good Bible word. And this is, this is, the, this is the closet charismatic in me. Totally right here. Exult means to leap. Literally. To express great happiness. Often verbally. And, and uh, Lowe Nida, uh, particularly, Johann Lowe and Eugene Nida in the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. And I forgot to footnote this. I just realized I didn't footnote. So I'm footnote off, so sorry. Um, also said, and I laughed when I read this, appropriate body movement. <laughs> because I have an imagination. Um, to leap and to express great happiness, often verbally and inappropriate. Body movement, which means, and, and this is the biblical idea of taking rejoicing and working it out. 
there is a sin problem when our internal state of enjoyment can't get out. Um, and that's not to say that they're different. They're not personalities God has made that that the external component of that is is a stoic enjoyment. I, I'm totally cool with that. I think the Lord can totally create an enjoyment that's external that has a stoic nature to it. So I'm not arguing that you should be doing black backflips. Not at all. That's not my point. My point is that somehow the internal enjoyment of the fact that we're enjoying Christ is to get out. Somehow. Whether it be through your proclamation of the gospel, putting your hands to ministry, or when we're gathered and singing, somehow appropriate body movement, but, but something that lets this get out. And often, particularly in our tradition, in our theological genre, that, is, that never happens. And, and what I want to say is it's totally okay. It's totally okay. Because if things go well tonight at 8.30, there will be a lot of appropriate body movement at 26 Pine Ridge Drive. Because if the Falcons walk away with a win over the Eagles, there will be lots of appropriate body movement. And that had probably nothing to do at all with the gospel. And, and, and I would hate to think that I could exult in something greater than I could exult in Jesus. And that's probably a cheap illustration. And I'm sorry if that in any way cheapens worship. That's not my intention. But my point is that somehow my enjoyment of Jesus has to get out. And, and then glorying. He says here, and give Him the glory. That is to speak of something as being unusually... This is, this is Lonida as well. To glory in is to speak of something as being unusually fine and deserving honor. Isn't that sweet? Doesn't that just tastes good? That when I glory in Christ, I am enjoying the fact that He is an unusually fine reality. And you know, I can enjoy food like that. But I've, I'm told to enjoy Jesus like that. Because you know what that does? That speaks of the magnitude of the object of your enjoyment. Piper uses this illustration... When one is thirsty and they come upon a, a mountain spring, they don't seek to hold back on their consuming of the water because they may somehow drink it all. No, they dive in and they drink and they drink and they drink and they enjoy and they enjoy. Why? Because it is more than they can consume. It's more than they ever need. There's more joy than they can express. So they just drink deeply. And that makes the mountain spring look glorious. And Jesus says, come to me, rejoice in me, exult in me, and I am exceedingly fine. And therefore drink deeply of me because you cannot get enough of me. Make much of me. And that makes Jesus look astounding because he is. Because He is. And, and that's what we're invited to do. That's <laughs> we're invited to do. And so, I, I, I'm totally running out of time. Um, this unique action 
What is it? What is this unique action that the Lord is doing? He's judging, but, but this is, I, I intentionally kind of put this there, A, because it's last in the text. That's why I'm hitting it last. I'm trying to be faithful to what's written, but I didn't put it first. Um, but um, verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for another purpose clause. This is the reason for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright. What's another unique action? What's another thing that we are to respond to here? John tells us it's the marriage of the Lamb. That is, Jesus has returned to take His church. And that's the second part of this chapter. Verse 11 starts out, Then I saw heaven open, that white horse. There he is. He's he's there. He's crushed our enemies. And he's coming for me. He's rescued me. And I will rejoice and exult and glory in. There's my king. John says, this is why you exult. He's crushed your enemies. And he's come to take you. Guys, he's coming. He's coming. Don't miss the forest for the trees. We get in the war and we fight the war and we get that it's hard. There are hard days. There are difficult days. There are difficult years. There are difficult series of years. But don't miss the fact that the king is coming and he will rescue his people. And John says here, rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. Don't miss it. Don't miss the point. Make much of him. But then also, another good reason to respond here is, Jesus has sanctified his church. I love, I love how John words this. He says, the bride has made herself ready. Semicolon. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright. This fine linen is imagery given to illustrate the righteousness of the saints. Listen to the wording. It was granted her. It was granted her. To clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The church has been granted to put on full righteousness. Guys, while we are here, we have a fleshly, it's, pardon, it's just Bible language, I don't know any other language to use, a fleshly, a tendency to run sometimes towards sin. We know what that's like. We feel the temptation in this, some of the leftover nature that we have. And if you're like Paul, you come to places like Romans 7 and you totally get it. You totally get it. It's like, I, the things I know I should do is so hard, but the things I shouldn't do, they come so easy and naturally. Who's going to rescue me from this? And you cry out with Paul, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The day is coming where you will be granted that you can put on righteousness forever. And if you're tired of wrestling against sin, the day is coming where you'll have to do it ever again. Never again. Philippians 1.6 tells us, that what he's begun, 
He will finish. And if you have come to Jesus and believed the gospel, He started a gracious work in you that the Bible calls sanctification, and He will complete it. Just keep fighting. He's going to finish what He started. And you and I will be granted to put on the righteousness of reality, a reality of righteousness, and sin will be done away with, and we will never have to wrestle with that again, and we can come and worship Him without any hindrance. And so I'm going to close by saying this. Sunday morning, it's like practice. It's like a walkthrough before the game. And what we get to do on Sunday mornings as a church is we get to practice what it's going to be like sometimes in the kingdom where, where our response to Him is full-blown, full-orbed, no hindrances. We get to practice that in response to what we see Him doing globally and locally in us and around us in, in, our, in our country, in our ministries. And so what I want to invite you to do before we... We're not going to finish up Revelation 19. Obviously today we'll finish that up next week. I'm really... I, I couldn't wait. When we started back in January 8th, I was looking forward to the second half of Revelation 19. So you may be here next week a while. Not really, but... Maybe. Before we get there, I just want to invite you to practice what John has taught us to practice. I want you to look around. I want you to see His grandeur. Not in the warm fuzzies, but in every activity of the Lord. Even in the difficulty. Even in the wrestling and the wrangling. And worship in response to what he has done what He's doing and what He's going to do. Because guys, today is a dress rehearsal. It's a dress rehearsal. Do you love Him like that? We're told in Scripture to love Him that way. And I want to invite you to come and see Him. Isaiah came in Isaiah 6 in response to the death of King Uzziah. And he came to the temple and the Lord did a most amazing thing. He was gracious enough to let Isaiah look up and see the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, sitting on the throne. And the train of his robe filling the temple. And the threshold and foundations shook and smoke rose up. And there were angels flying around. Holy, holy, holy. Jesus promises that day is going to come in full. Right now, it's not here. But it's an opportunity to practice for what is coming. So church, I want to say to you, will you worship? Will you look past your desires for environment, style? And would you look up and respond to the one who saved you? Would you make much of him with me? Let's pray. Um, well, Jesus... You are exceedingly fine and amazing. You do all things well, including crush your enemies. And I thank you that there will be no enemy of yours that will seek to stamp out the work of the gospel in us that you won't crush for us. Thank you for the promise to rescue us. Even... 
if some of us are allowed to die, you will raise us up and you will crush our enemies. Father, we have nothing to fear. So right now I pray against the evil one and any spirit of fear that may be created in any heart. Father, I pray against the evil one and the effects of the evil one that would seek to draw our attention away from Jesus to anything inferior. Lord, today we, your word has spoken about heavenly things. And, um, and so I just ask that you would lift our eyes from the things that are seen to the things that are unseen. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And cause us, cause us to make much of you today. Father, I ask that you would let there be a uniqueness to individual responses. But Father, may there be a uniformity somehow by your spirit in all of our external response to the internal reality of what you're doing in us. Father, I pray and long for the day that that becomes just normal practice inside these walls. And I pray that that would become normal practice every place where the gospel is named and loved and revered and preached. So help us today to do that. Holy Spirit, please reign. Point us to Jesus that we may come and see the Father for the glory of and advancement of in the name of Jesus that is above every name we pray.